Jazz, a world audience podcast about anything and everything, weather, science, earth science, and even a whole lot more. I am your host and the creator of the Weather Jazz podcast, Andre Bernier. I'm the senior meteorologist on staff with WJW Television in Cleveland, Ohio. This is episode number 247 for Wednesday, October 13th, 2020. One And wow, what a day in science history. We'll be covering some of the scientific things going on across our globe today. Two of those items are space items, and one is geological. But, of course, you heard a countdown in the very beginning of this podcast episode today. And that's because it's big space news. That was a countdown from this morning. A countdown that shot a crew of four into space aboard the new Shepard rocket, which was launched not in California, not in Florida, but this launch occurred in West Texas. That's where the launch site was, and that's also where the landing site was. The big news, really, is the fact that part of this four-team crew included the oldest person to ever fly in space. Now, you probably have heard of this individual before. His name is William Shatner. Yes, that's the actor that played Captain Kirk on the Starship Enterprise. And that was uh, really so long ago in the 60s when Star Trek made its debut on television and developed quite a following, which obviously led to not only some follow-up and breakaway television-type series, but also a number of films. So congratulations to William Shatner, who is 90 years old. And you can watch the entire launch. I am going to post that launch the video, embed the video on episode number 247. It really is worth your time. You can scrub the timeline right up to the point of launch, and then you can see the main booster rocket not only re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, but also land. And it's a controlled landing right there in West Texas, followed by the passenger capsule, which... uh, made it down, oh, probably about 10 minutes after it launched. So it goes up into the atmosphere. And by the way, it hits a maximum altitude above what is called the Kármán altitude. It is essentially the altitude at which you are considered in space. That altitude is 328,000 feet. And this particular capsule reached an altitude of 
351,185 feet. And it's well over the 100-kilometer altitude, Carmen Altitude, again from West Texas. It's really an exciting thing to watch. If you want to watch the whole thing, go to weatherjazz.com, episode number 247. And I'm going to embed the viewer, the whole thing. It's a three-hour video, but again, you can scrub through it. It is from Blue Origin, the company that is responsible for safely sending now the second crew up into space and back. Also, another first in this particular crew was the first Australian-born and full Australian citizen that made it up into a crew and up into space. So he's the first Australian ever to make a a claim at space or having spent at least a few minutes in zero-G gravity. Really, really cool stuff. All right, so the second thing that I want to talk about also as a space item is the fact that the sun has been very active. In fact, over the last couple of days, there has been a sunspot which was visible from Earth aimed straight at Earth. Well, a couple of days ago, this particular sunspot produced what's known as a coronal mass ejection. They call them CMEs for short. Essentially, the the sun burps at the Earth, and it was aimed straight at Earth. So it sends a high stream of particles, high-energy particles directed toward the Earth, which reached us on Monday night and early Tuesday morning. And the result was that it sent the aurora borealis all the way down into the northern reaches of the United States, Minnesota, northern Wisconsin, northern Michigan. It was even visible right along the extreme northern horizon of Lake Erie. A couple of uh, people tweeted that they took a long exposure and they were able to see the northern lights. Now, it was very, very difficult to see with the naked eye, if at all, but a timed exposure would certainly bring out some of those highlights. But as far as the naked eye is concerned, the aurora borealis or northern lights pushed all the way into southern Alaska, which means that from Fairbanks, normally you see the northern lights either above or to the north, it was actually seen in the southern sky. And I'll post a picture again on weatherjazz.com, episode 247. You'll see from the National Weather Service office in Fairbanks, Alaska, the aurora borealis that they saw, not in the north, not overhead, but in the southern sky. That's how powerful that CME was. Good news, though, is that there was a little concern that the CME was directed so directly towards Earth that uh, they thought that perhaps uh, that radio signals would be disrupted, satellites may be disrupted, and even the electrical grid, and that has happened in the past, uh, but fortunately, no reports of any of the grid, either snapping shut or any other negative effects or impacts from the CME other than the aurora, which made an appearance on Monday night and early Tuesday morning. One more item before we take a break, and it's geological in nature. It's the fact that in Iceland, of course, Iceland has been a hotspot 
of geological activity for much of this year since the March Fagradatskyak volcano came into being. It is largely dormant right now. However, Iceland has recorded in the last week alone 10,000 earthquakes, most of them pretty small, most of them under three, which is really so small, it is really undetectable to most humans. A few of them did manage to go above three. There was one at uh, 3.2 this morning and one at 3.1. Those you can start to feel, but suffice to say, 10,000 of them, that's a lot. Most of them occurring around the Kiltger uh, volcano. It's an old dormant volcano, but there's a lot of concern about this. The, this particular mountain, Kilter, is very readily visible from the road that goes between Reykjavik and Keflavik. And when Noah and I were there a few years ago in the summer and taking that road to and from uh, Keflavik and Reykjavik back and forth or going to the Blue Lagoon, you can see Kilter. Uh, there. It is basically a very prominent conical volcano type mountain, and it jets up almost in the middle of nowhere. So that's why it is uh, so eye catching because here it is we have this rolling topography, and in the middle of it is this giant conical old volcano. Well, it's active. There are a lot of earthquakes here, and geologists are extremely concerned about those particular earthquakes because the lava, if it broke through anywhere near Kiltakur or Kilkar, then the lava would really have nowhere to go, whereas at Fagradalsviak, it had somewhere to go. There was a giant valley, Geldinget Gelö, um, and it totally filled up uh, with this lava. There's really no more um, valley there. But in Kielker's, uh particular stance and presence and, and the topography all around it, there's nowhere for the lava to go except toward Keflavik, which is where the international airport is, and Reykjavik. And uh, so they're watching that very carefully. A couple of other places southeast of Vatnajökull, which is the largest glacier in Iceland, south central Iceland. And my son and I climbed a part of that called Soltajökull, which is in the southwestern corner of that particular glacier. Uh, it's really big. It's sprawling. But on the southeast side of that, there's also uh, a lot of earthquakes. And th- that ground rose of 40 centimeters. The ground rose 40 centimeters. That is concerning because that says the magma is trying to push the ground up and pushing the ground up uh, takes a lot of force and energy. So there's some concern that one, two, and there's a third area in West Central Iceland also very active with earthquakes right now. Uh, It is very possible that if two of them open up at the same time, It'll be the first time in recorded history that two active volcanoes have opened up in Iceland in recorded history. You know, we've seen one, Ayufiukl, it would be one of them. That was the one that disrupted traffic about 10 years or so ago. There have been plenty others also uh, within my lifetime, but only one at a time. So we'll have to wait to see if two 
will go off at the same time. That would, in fact, make a little bit of history. We'll take a short break right here. Got a couple of weather items to go before we close out this episode. And we also have a listener question who actually asked this question to my friend Joe Bastardi. Many of you know Joe Bastardi. And somebody asked him a question on Twitter, and he answered it. And it was truly fascinating. Never thought of it in this light before. But and I thought the answer was actually uh, quite brilliant and spot on as well. So we'll cover all of that. Some weather news, that question on Twitter to Joe Bastardi. All that's coming up right after the break. All right, we are back. And I have a couple of weather items before we close out today's program. And that is an interesting tweet, a challenge, if you would, that the National Weather Service in Caribou gave out to the National Weather Service in Phoenix, Arizona. Check this out. This, this was tweeted, oh, sometime around 7 or 8 o'clock this morning, East Coast time. And they said, hey, National Weather Service at Phoenix, want to take bets who will be warmer today with a couple of laughing emojis and a thermometer as well. And so I did some checking. Now, remember, when the West is cold, the East is warm. And that's exactly what's been happening. There has been a lot of snow from Montana all the way down to the higher elevations of Utah and Arizona and New Mexico. So it's pretty chilly in the western U.S. The forecast high temperature for Phoenix today, 74 degrees with bright sunshine. It should be warmer than that. And so I checked the forecast for caribou. Remember, caribou is enjoying the same thing that Clevelanders are enjoying, and that is being on the warm side of a ridge of high pressure in the eastern U.S. And so the forecast high for caribou today, 75 degrees, exact same as Phoenix, Arizona. And we're talking about pushing into late October here, and the chance of that happening is pretty slim. And so they have thrown down the gauntlet. And perhaps on Friday we'll find out uh, who won. We'll, we'll cover that Phoenix high temperature 75 and Caribou high temperature 75. It would actually be quite humorous if Caribou edged out Phoenix for the high temperature actual on this Wednesday. We'll let you know as uh, that draws to a close. And uh, perhaps again, we'll have that information on Friday. Well, Joe Bastardi is a very good friend of mine and a wonderful brother in the Lord, brother in the faith. Uh, we share the same uh, real awe of the creative power of our Lord when he essentially created this atmosphere. It is amazing how complex it is. Well, Joe talks about what we call stratospheric warming. He did tweet this morning, and his tweet said, five major late October strat warms argue strongly for a lot of cold from Thanksgiving to New Year's this year. And he listed a couple of years where that occurred, 1950, 1968, 1985, and 1989, and 2010. He says it's a lot like a cage match in the WWE, the World Weatherman Entertainment, he calls it, 
which raises the question, what are you going to do if the strat worm runs wild over you? And he has a couple of interesting maps that he tweeted. One of them is the temperature anomaly, and it's over the northern hemisphere. But there is a huge, and I do mean huge, anomaly, a bullseye of warming over northern Canada near Resolute Bay and maybe even including um, about half of Greenland, the western half. All of the the old Yukon territories of Canada, Manitoba, and western Alaska. Go check it out. It is going to be posted on Weather Jazz, episode number 247. You'll see the bullseye in the strat warm, what he calls stratospheric warming, at about 10 millibars. Whenever you see that, typically right down the line, things really start to turn cold. And that's what he is looking at. And a couple of analog years, meaning years where that has happened before and what happened following that stratospheric warming in October was an extremely cold period from Thanksgiving until New Year's Eve, 1950, 1968, 1985, 1989, and 2010. And uh, so we'll have to watch that very, very carefully. And that almost goes along with the woolly bear because the woolly bear forecast essentially called for kind of a lackadaisical November and not to be drawn into complacency over it because uh, December and uh, perhaps even into the, the first couple of days of 2022 would really, really uh, kick us with some Arctic air, especially in the eastern U.S. and some very snowy conditions. Keep that in mind. It's something that we'll watch carefully, and I'm sure that Scott Sable and I will discuss in greater detail in a future episode of Weather Jazz. All right, one more, and it's a question that was given to Joe Bastardi, and I found his answer to be really, really very, very good. And on October the 11th, Joe Bastardi was given this question on Twitter. What a great question I got today on the David Webb show about wind turbines. It had to do with how much effect does taking the energy out of the air and converting it to energy that can be used has on the atmosphere. I have absolutely no idea. And so, question mark, he leaves it right in the lap of Joe Bastardi. And it's a very, very short answer, but I have to agree with this one. And it also points to Joe's reverence for the atmosphere and for how it was just really fearfully and wonderfully made. He says, in in answer to this, my gut feeling is given the majesty of the atmosphere, the amount is so small as to effectively, and in essence, be zero. Much more environmental effect on habitat, in my opinion. So essentially he's saying there, there's a little more effect on habitat anywhere near these windmills, aka uh, bird strikes and things of that nature, as opposed to taking the energy out of wind, converting it to the kind of energy that we use in our homes, and essentially 
leaving the energy, the the, the energy from the moving air uh, at a lower pace. Uh, so you're converting it from one kind of energy to another. Uh, but really, the atmosphere is so big, as thin as it is, as William Shatner described on his flight. He, he described looking at the atmosphere going, that's our atmosphere. It looks paper thin. Yes, it is paper thin when you shoot up into the, uh, uh, in, into the atmosphere 100 kilometers high. However, it, it's also extremely voluminous when you're looking at it from the ground. And uh, essentially, Joe is saying that it means nothing. It's not going to take the kind of energy out of the atmosphere that really even begins to put a dent in uh, taking the atmospheric energy out and uh, really seeing an impact in that regard. And I agree with him. There's a much greater environmental impact on wind turbines as opposed to atmospheric. I thought it was a great answer. And again, if you want to follow Joe on Twitter, if you do have a Twitter account, I know there's uh, lots of increasing numbers of social media alternatives that are out there. Uh, and uh, slowly but surely, I'm uh, getting an account uh, everywhere that I can get it. But if you are on Twitter. I know he's on Twitter at the moment and post a lot there. And so if you want to follow Joe Bastardi, his handle is at Big Joe Bastardi, B-A-S-T-A-R-D-I, Big Joe Bastardi. Uh, and he's one of the folks that I do recommend you to follow for really good and insightful weather type things, both long range, medium range, even short range, and science questions like the one that Joe answered on October the 11th. Well, that is going to wrap up this edition of Weather Jazz, episode number 247. A really cool look at uh, all kinds of science-related items. Some weather, some space, some geology if you're just jumping in now, make sure you go to the beginning because lots of cool stuff to talk about today. So help me to spread the word about weather jazz inside your sphere of influence. That is very, very important to me because it's going to be the way that this program grows its audience. I'm counting on you to share it with those of you that you think would enjoy this podcast. Now, I'm always looking for new topics, new suggestions, new angles of old topics, and I welcome your input. You can easily reach me. I have two methods, which are the quickest. The first is email, weatherjazz at yahoo.com. And the second, which is my preferred way, is the Weather Jazz Podcast Audience Connect Live. That number is 234-525-8888. 234-525-5888. Not to worry, click on the contacts tab at the top of the website, weatherjazz.com. Especially if you're driving, you don't want to be transcribing a number like that. So uh, just go to weatherjazz.com. That's easy enough to remember. Click on contacts. All that information is right there. 
right at your fingertips. Open Line Friday coming around, always working on something new, and maybe even it could be off topic. It doesn't matter what the topic is. I always try to make it fun to listen to and to engage in. So we'll see you on Friday with another great episode right here on Weather Jazz. Weather and science across the globe. Jazz Pop!